This evening I'd like to uh, explore uh, partly through uh, my own reflections and partly through uh, talking together the theme of bringing our practice to our daily lives and how do we sustain these practices of uh, developing clear seeing, opening the heart, the practices of mindfulness, uh, cultivating wisdom, developing uh, metta and the associated qualities of compassion, joy, and equanimity. Sometimes the, the world can seem uh, a hard place or the, the uh, everyday world, the world of work and family and newspapers and iPods and so forth can seem uh, quite a difficult place, very busy, very hectic. And our world is pretty fast these days. You know, it can be um, hard sometimes to, um, to be cultivating these qualities. Um, so what I'd like to do is to just uh, fairly briefly, maybe in half an hour, talk about a number of um, supports and perspectives that can really um, guide us and uh, give us a direction for having the practices that we've been developing here and the, the growth and insight um, continue as best as possible uh, for the rest of our lives. We sometimes say that the uh, second half of the retreat begins at 11 a.m. tomorrow, <laughs> you know. And uh, hopefully many of us will stay in touch and stay in um, various forms of connection that can really support us because we really uh, need that common uh, shared experience, support, um, sharing of perspectives, tools, creativity to, to uh, work in this way. There's a poem that I love very much, one of my favorite poems I thought I would read, which has different aspects of this uh, path of practice. And, and a lot of what we need to keep on doing, this is a poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey. Maybe many of you know this. It's, it's one which for me at a time of transition was very important and I would read this. And I've actually loved this so much I've given uh, Dharma talks where I only talked about this poem for the whole talk. It's something I really love and I could, I could do that easily this evening. But just, uh, but just briefly, it's a poem about doing what one has to do to stay true to oneself. Finding one's own voice, recognizing the voices in oneself that are not so helpful, maybe installed by various forces, families, cultures that may not be so helpful and somehow taking one's own journey more fully and seriously. I hope that that is a, a major result and fruit of our time together that we take our own journey which is very much also a journey to help others. Uh, that we take that um, ever more with um, care and with um, um, sort of appropriate, um, appropriate tending 
of, of, of this path. So this is Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop, you knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So how to keep that process going? How to keep that journey going? It's helpful to think both of practices that we can do ourselves and of what we might call external supports or the support of others. Both are really crucial. So I'll mention some of those which are uh, quite um, foundational. And then I'll mention some further perspectives on practice which can be very helpful in daily life. So in terms of those kinds of more so-called external supports or the support of others, community is very, very crucial. Having connection, you can feel the support here. How many of you would just come at home would just sit as much as you sit? <laughs> have sat here, I should say. The support is really crucial. Community is important. Many of you have communities you're part of, meditation communities or communities of friends. And to have that kind of support for the practices we've been doing is very, very crucial for most of us, almost all of us, I think. And so those of you who have groups or communities that you're part of, that's great. And to find uh, communities nearby, it can be very helpful, even if everything's not perfect, just to be in a place where um, silence and looking inward and cultivating this inner journey is, is valued. May not be people who even practice the same practices we've done. When I lived in Kentucky, uh, I met with all sorts of groups. I went out to Catholic monasteries. I met with Quakers, you know, um, the Unitarians. Um, a lot of people really value these kind of practices. It doesn't have to be people who know the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Awakening, the Eightfold Path, 
you know, the um, four Brahma Vihara and the four foundations of mindfulness and can, you know, hum them with a nice tune. You know, you don't need that. You know, you can really find any, find any people, if you're in a place which doesn't have groups that do explicit mindfulness practice or loving kindness practice, find someone who values science, sit with them. That, for me, when I've been in places where there wasn't so much, it's been very nourishing. And you can, it's really to keep the support for, for things going. Uh, if you live in a place which doesn't have too much happening, or um, start your own group. It doesn't have to be big. I had a group of three people. We met every two weeks. It was very, very nourishing at a really key, key time. So start your own groups. The external support, so to speak, of retreats. You know, I think it's very, very helpful to really prioritize retreats and to even be thinking of, you know, uh, if this resonated with you, of when you might do it again. You know, the, a lot of the people who I, I, I counsel and work with on a kind of on a regular basis find it very helpful to have a sense of where the retreats or the times of more focused practice fit in. It can actually give one a sense of um, stability and, and kind of an inner knowledge that you're taking care of your, a part of yourself that, that you value. The Buddha once was asked by Ananda, he said, I've been thinking, and he said that, uh, I've been thinking that good friends are at least half of the spiritual path. And the Buddha said, that's not quite right, Ananda. Good friends are the entirety of the spiritual path. And so that sense of community and connection and people you can talk to about this, really, really crucial. It really, really is very nourishing. There also are um, a lot of inner practices or per more personal practices that can really keep things going. Many of those are, are familiar, I'm sure, to many of you. Daily practice, the starting point. Find a way to, to have that practice be daily. And it can come in all sorts of ways. It doesn't have to be always the same form. You know, but a daily meditation practice, some of you in part came to the retreat to help give momentum for the practice. Some of you have steady practices. But to find ways to do that, you know, um, to find the support, you know, maybe, you know, if there's someone you feel a connection with here, ask that person if you all can talk on the phone once a week. Talk about your practice. Remind each other. Send emails. Uh, Sylvia Borstein and Carol Wilson uh, Sylvia is a teacher here, and Carol is a teacher on the East Coast. They send an uh, email, I believe at least once a week, um, doing mutual gratitude practice, or not so much towards each other, but just sending something I'm grateful for. And they do that by email. You know, you, there are all sorts of ways to be creative. You know, connect with someone and send them an email about your practice. You know, whatever, whatever works. Very, very helpful. Uh, daily practice, really crucial. Find ways of having the, the cultivation of mindfulness or loving kindness. Find a place, not just on the cushion, but in, in the different movements of daily life. You know, there are a lot of small practices that um, are quite wonderful. Um, 
when I was writing the book that's over on the table, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I, had, I have a section called Mindfulness in Action, or a chapter. And I actually wrote a section on 60 ways to cultivate mindfulness in daily life, and my editor cut it. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> but I, I gave a lot of attention to it, and maybe it will find some other form. You know, I mean, it's occurred to me it could be a good basis for one of these little books that you buy at the checkout counter at the supermarket or something. <laughs> you know. Or, or at the Spirit Rock bookstore, of course. <laughs> you know, so, um, but they're all, I assembled, uh, a lot of things were my own little practices, but a lot of them were assembled from other people, small things. For a long time, I don't do this all the time now, but for a long time, where I had it, it possible, after lunch, I took a five or ten minute walk and did walking meditation. You know, people can do a kind of, uh, sometimes do a kind of grace, or just a pausing before activities. Very, very helpful. To do that in, uh, with a meal with your friends, just to be in silence before a meal. Um, to work with intentions is very beautiful. To, uh, in your, at the end of your sitting, check in with your intentions for the day that will support your practice. Sometimes valuable to come back to your intentions, find a way of setting intentions once or twice or three times a day. You know, maybe if there's a natural pause, just take five minutes to sit and say, here's my intention. That's a practice that I do a lot of the time. I, do, I set intentions about four times a day. And it's taken time to, for that really to get grounded and solidified, but it's working with intentions is very helpful. It doesn't mean we've got to have to get it perfect, but just that coming back to intention, something we've emphasized a lot here. Finding creative ways to come back to being present. One um, practice which I do, which kind of came about accidentally, occurred at the end of that several week uh, metta retreat that I did. And I was still here at Spirit Rock and I had to deal with some things outside of Spirit Rock. And so I downloaded uh, 400 emails, which was a little bit brutal to go through them, having done metta for at that point, four and a half weeks. But what was interesting about it was the metta was really strong and I couldn't do email without doing metta. And I worked out a form, which I still do, more or less, and which actually Sylvia really liked it and she wrote about it in the Shambhala Sun, so probably a, a few other thousand people know it. And now I, what, I, what I did was, what I found myself doing after this retreat was, with every email, I gave four, the four phrases of metta to each person I was sending the email to. And I tried to have something of the metta spirit in the body of the email, like, I hope you're well, or, you know, and it, over time I vary it so people don't think it's too <laughs> obnoxious, you know. <laughs> you know. And sometimes the most important thing is the feeling, just to, have, to actually do the phrase and have that there. It's, it's, for me, it was very interesting because I, there was no way I couldn't do that, answering emails after doing metta for so long, and it's actually stayed with me as a practice for five years, over five years. And I've shared it with a lot of people, and I think a lot of people do it, because I get emails like that, I hope you're well. <laughs> Sometimes. Um, but it's, you know, it's this puzzle probably that many of us have had of how, 
how do you bring awareness and mindfulness to, the, to life on the computer? Sometimes it just seems like we go into a mindless world on the computer, right? Kind of virtual reality. And there, I have to say that my emails aren't quite as fast as they might be if I didn't do this, but they're not that much slower. And it connects me with my body and my heart on the computer, which is a big, I think, a big issue in this culture. You know, how to be with electronic devices without just kind of going into some mindless place, right? Big issue. So there are ways of being creative like that that I think we can all, can all find. Uh, reading books, hearing talks, great support. You know, doing a little some reading every day. Um, one of my students um, um, actually does uh, reading over lunch, you know, which is not, not the same as being mindful of lunch, but he does reading in a way that really uh, supports him. Uh, while, you know, every day for lunch, he reads 15 or 20 minutes of a, a book that is related to practice. He's been doing it for quite a few years. Little rituals like that can really be helpful. You know, and um, the Dharma Seed website is an incredible resource. You know, it's the, all of the talks here, go to that website. It works totally on Donna. And there are thousands of talks on the website, really good quality talks, you know, from the teachers here, the teachers at the Insight Meditation Society. I probably have well over a hundred talks there on different topics, you know. And, you know, you can also just scan. You want to hear a talk on equanimity. You can scan for them and, and find them. And, you know, you can, you know, with the technology these days, you can really make use of that resource in, in all sorts of wonderful ways. You know. they're, based, they're, they're MP3 files, so you can just download them play them on a computer or on an MP3 player. Very, very wonderful resource. Many of our lives are very busy and a very important aspect of deepening this practice is sometimes to need to prioritize what's important in our lives. I'm sure for many of us that occurred during this retreat. What's important? Am I giving due weight to what I think is important? You know, I know that's often been an issue for me that I've often have insights. Okay, um, maybe that, that activity isn't so nourishing anymore or I want to have more time here or I want to make more time for meditation or, or whatever it might be, for, for chanting and so forth. And a lot of the people I work with have to go through, they go through a period of prioritizing, you know, what's important? How much do I, uh, you know, how do I structure my life? And a lot of people I find that I work with do that at some point in a major way. It's really, really crucial. Just a few other uh, tools that are helpful. Um, one is to, uh, if it works for you, to find a time to come back to practice a little more than just a sitting. Most weeks for the last 25 years, I've done a Sabbath. You know, ancient tradition, East and West, of having most of the day for practice, once a week. Do that, your practice will, 
will um, uh, be very supported. You know, I, I often do it. I teach a lot on Wednesdays, I, and I meditate and teach in the morning. And then the afternoon and the evening, I often stay here at Spirit Rock. And sometimes I go into the hills, sometimes I sit in the staff area for a retreat. Sometimes I just do it at home, you know, to do that. It doesn't have to be a whole day. Doing it one morning a week, call it a Sabbath, or one afternoon. One person I know every Friday uh, between 2 and 6, he does, does practice. It doesn't have to be real, you know, sit and walk, real intensive. It can be a sitting, you know, take a walk in the hills, do some reading, do another sitting. Do that regularly. It will really nourish you. It really will support this. You know, do day-longs and so forth. It would really be very, 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 very helpful. If the heart practices resonate with you, do them every day. You know? I think that it's very valuable to do something like the mindfulness or wisdom practice every day, a heart practice every day, and some kind of body practice every day, which just could be doing uh, walking meditation when you're walking around. It's another thing to think about. If you do a lot of walking, just do walking meditation all the time you're walking. You know, when I was a student, um, I didn't have a car. I don't know if I mentioned this, but, but I didn't have a car. And I walked, you know, I walked all over Boston and took the public transportation. And I just said, at a certain point, I was frustrated. I'm a student. I don't have enough time to meditate. And I said, I can use all my walking time for walking meditation. And it was really great. And I don't think I lost a lot of important thoughts that w would have occurred when I was just walking around, you know? So those are, those are some sort of nitty-gritty types of tools, uh, uh, resources, perspectives. I want to mention just a few other general perspectives that I think are very crucial. My experience is that a huge support for daily life practice coming alive is having mindfulness of the body and being able to be aware of the body. It's been a very important uh, practice for me. You know, a person who was a mentor to me at a very crucial time, who's now more of a colleague, John Travis, really a teacher of the body. Some of you know John. And I did a lot of focus on the body and just awareness of the body over quite a number of years. And it's really, really crucial. Um, I think it's very, as, as we might have seen in, in speaking, being grounded in the body, really, really crucial for being able to have mindfulness while you're speaking, to be present, to not just be caught up in the, in the, in the words, in the more cognitive realm, you know? And so I really encourage uh, cultivating mindfulness of the body in a lot of ways, walking meditation, yoga, really stay with the body in your sitting, Maybe on some retreat, just focus on developing further mindfulness of the body. You know, if you ever come on a retreat with me, I'd love to guide you in that. It's really been precious for me. You know, at a crucial time, I was talking with John once, and I think I was complaining that I said that, you know, I was complaining all those guys who are, or women who are monks or nuns, they kind of have a lot of support, and we don't have as much support, you know, and, and I was, you know, complaining. And, and he said, let your body be your monastery. And it kind of electrified me when he said that. Let your body be your monastery. In other words, 
we're supported here by the schedule, by each other. It's kind of like a monastery, right? You get up, you go to meditate, and so forth. We live in a community. And awareness of the body can have that function of always being present there. Not easy, but it's, it's, it's a direction. I think it's very, very crucial for our culture, especially being so, uh, so cognitively oriented. Speech practice is another wonderful way to have our daily lives be linked with practice. And we've just done a, a, a small um, introduction to speech practice, but I'll just mention that, as I mentioned, it's a very important, or, or how should I say, it's a, it's a major interest that I have. And on Dharma Seed, there are talks that I gave in July and August of this year on speech practice. I gave six talks on Wednesday mornings that are a very good sequence of uh, practices if you want to do speech practice further. There's also material, um, quite a bit of material in my book, as I mentioned earlier. And, and in doing speech practice, it can be a way that we increasingly have a sense, an increased sense that our speech is also practice. And if that's the case, for many of us, we can have more of a sense of practice many hours a day. It's not just about being on the cushion, it's about bringing this somehow into our lives in all sorts of ways. The last thing I'll mention, and we, then we can open it up, is that there's a very, um, I think a very special place for um, working with challenges that, there, that when we become interested in how we get a little bit stuck or lost, when we get interested in our own suffering and want to explore it rather than get rid of it. And that's not always necessarily appropriate for every person every time. There are times for healing, for not dealing with the suffering too much, for sure. You know, and it's kind of, you have to, we have to know ourselves in that way. If there's been a lot of pain and suffering, it can be really valuable simply to do that which is healing, supportive, and so forth. Um, practices like the metta, or practices which really um, give one contact with one's awake qualities, with one's beautiful qualities, where you feel that radiance, like the metta for all beings. You know, you can feel that kind of radiance. Practice, or maybe the chanting for many of us, that feel, feel that wholeness and connection. That can be really valuable. You know, when I, I do a lot of work with people with the the, on the theme of judgments, as I've mentioned a few times, the judgmental mind. And generally, when I work with people, I suggest two main ways that judgments get transformed. And it really is linked to how transformation occurs generally. One is by going into whatever's there. And when we work with judgments, it's going into the judgmental mind, which often is to go into some hard stuff, quite often to go into painful territory, sometimes our wounds and so forth. That's part of transforming judgments. And yet there's a parallel track, which for some people needs to be emphasized exclusively for periods of time. And that is going into the beautiful states. <laughs> and hanging out there and reminding ourselves really of our own beauty. 
reminding ourselves of our own dignity and wonder and, and uh, potential, really. And with the judgmental mind, people, ha I think, have to do both. And I think that's true generally for us, that there are these two kinds of transformation. One of them, we go into what's there. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes there's suffering. We see where we're stuck. We learn. We unravel over time. And a second, very different way, that's kind of a direct way to go into stuff. A very more indirect way is to increase our beautiful qualities and just hang out there, increase them, build that so that becomes more of a center of gravity of who we are. And in that case, sometimes the other stuff falls away. You don't always have to work through it. You know, it's, it's very interesting. When we go to the beautiful places, our strong places, and build them and get them stronger, we don't always have to hang out so much with our stuck places because sometimes they just fall away more of themselves because we know better in a way because we've hung out with the beautiful. You know? And so that's, that to me is important to, to go regularly to the beautiful. And the other side of that is to, when it's appropriate, it's not always appropriate, to take our challenges, our difficulty, as opportunities to learn. When we're willing to do that, our learning can accelerate. You know, there's a phrase in the Tibetan uh, Mojong teachings, which are these slogans for practice. One of them goes, Turn all, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. You know, to, to be with what's difficult, to continue as much as we can, not to shoot the second arrow. And some of us have challenging, ongoing situations, you know, and there are ways that we can learn better to be with them. It may be that we need to really um, increase the amount of the beautiful states, really increase them. You know, and get stronger in that way. But so many people learn so much. We learn from the difficulties, you know. There's a lot of learning that comes out of our challenges. And, you know, I was thinking of a friend who has a, a son who's had a lot of disabilities. And um, it's actually the same friend who gave me this um, scarf. And she has a son with uh, disabilities. It's really been incredibly hard for her, you know. He's an adult now, and he has learning disabilities, and he's um, had a lot of hardship in his life, and he's, he's, he's still kind of at risk as an adult, you know. He's, sometimes, he's had one or two episodes of drunk driving and so forth, you know, and it's a very hard situation, you know, where uh, sometimes you hear it, get the telephone rings, and I don't know if that's my son in an emergency, right? Living with that, right? And she says that um, she does her best, but that, that continual, it's like a continual challenge. That incredible learning about love and commitment has come through. And I know that many of you know exactly that, something like that situation. And so that's to to really be open 
to those kind of um, challenges when it's appropriate to, to take challenges or difficulties as opportunities for practice. When we do that, maybe start with the small stuff, right? <laughs> Always start with the small stuff. And when we do that, practice really changes. Practice really develops. Mostly it's to come back to this very simple formula that I gave near the beginning of the retreat that the essence of our practice is appropriate response. Each moment, moment to moment, is really the core. How, and just to remember, to come back, what's the appropriate response right now? That's our practice, over and over again, every moment. The mindfulness helps us know what's happening. The metta can soften our heart. The wisdom can give some clarity. Always asking, what's an appropriate response right now? So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute, and then we can uh, talk together some. Second thought, let's, um, let's stop it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.